0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. In our last episode, I mentioned that my ideas for show topics come from a variety of sources. Sometimes I'll carry an idea around in my head for a long time until it goes dormant, and then something sparks it, like it did just the other night. There is a series of cop shows called the Jesse Stone series, based on the books by Robert B. Parker, who also gave us Spencer for Hire. The central character, played by Tom Selleck, is a small-town chief of police who lost his job in L.A. thanks to drinking problems and has relocated to a small coastal town called Paradise, located just a Stone's Throw from Boston. I was watching the episode called No Remorse, and Stone was trying to answer questions being put to him by his shrink, played by William Devane, while enjoying his second Johnny Walker and doing his best to come to terms with his feelings for his ex. And Devane... In trying to get Stone to admit that he was putting too much responsibility on himself compared him to Wyatt Earp trying to clean up all the bad guys alone. And that started me thinking that Wyatt worked side-by-side with some of the greatest lawmen in the West. He wasn't always trying to do it all himself. One of the best examples I can think of was when he was working as an assistant deputy marshal in Dodge City back in 1878 and he teamed up with legendary lawmen Bat Masterson, Bill Tillman, and Charlie Bassett to hunt down the killer of nightclub singer Dora Hand. This was three years before the O.K. Corral, and Wyatt was already a well-respected lawman. So were those three who made up the posse. They were legends. For most of you who know the Old West, those names, Earp, Masterson, Tillman, and Bassett, are very likely ringing your bell. This was a posse you didn't want coming after you. You might as well sit back and grab your favorite drink, because there's a classic Western story here. And it all starts in the wide-open cow town they call the Sodom of the West. Dodge City, Kansas. Dodge City got its start when Henry Sittler built a sod house five miles west of Fort Dodge to oversee his cattle operations in that region. And Sittler's house quickly became a stopping point for travelers of all types. Buffalo hunters, soldiers, and stage travelers. Fort Dodge, named after Colonel Henry Dodge, was an army camp which had been established in 1865 to protect wagon trains from warring Plains Indians and to furnish supplies to soldiers from surrounding army camps to fight Indians. The Plains of Kansas were loaded with two things back then, buffalo and warring Indians. The Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad arrived in September of 1872 to find Dodge City ready and waiting for business. In the years prior to Dodge City's heyday, railroad cow towns like Newton and Ellsworth had attracted all the troublemakers, and the men with courage enough to wear a badge were being gunned down in those cow towns with regularity. It was a dangerous job. Before the railroad took a turn toward Dodge City, the early settlers in Dodge traded in Buffalo Hides and provided a civilian community for Fort Dodge. There was good money in Buffalo Hides. People back east found it fashionable to wear buffalo coats and to decorate their homes with buffalo rugs. The Plains Indians' lives were centered around the buffalo, They used every part of the buffalo for their survival, and they followed the herds. Needless to say, in all the plain states, war between the buffalo hunters and the Indians was constant. When the railroad arrived, Dodge City soon became involved in the cattle trade, and Texas Longhorns began moving north along the Chisholm Trail. Dodge City suddenly became the queen of the cow towns, and they became a boom town with thousands of cattle passing annually through its stockyards. And trade in buffalo hides was booming as well. The peak years of the cattle trade in Dodge City were from 1883 to 1884 and during that time the town grew tremendously. Dodge City became famous and no town could match its reputation as a true frontier settlement of the old west. Dodge City had more famous and infamous gunfighters working at one time or another than any other town in the west. It boasted also the usual array of saloons, gambling halls and brothels including the famous Long Branch Saloon and the China Doll Brothel. The Long Branch Saloon was built as a result of a wager between cowboys and soldiers playing baseball. Bets were placed, and if the cowboys beat the soldiers, the soldiers agreed to provide building materials to construct a saloon. Chalkley Beeson, a wealthy farmer and rancher, and William Harris bought the saloon in 1878. Harris named it after his hometown of Long Branch, New Jersey. It was a plain storefront bar with little ornamentation, typical for Frontier saloons of the time. The saloon prospered until the railroad replaced the cattle drive. The Long Branch burned down in 1885 and was never rebuilt, except in the imagination of the television writers for the long-running TV series Gunsmoke, in which the Long Branch Saloon and Miss Kitty were the attractions. And the show actually did use some antiques which had belonged to the original saloon. The Long Branch Saloon soon became the most popular and refined saloon in Dodge City. Beeson was a talented musician and led a five-piece orchestra that played nightly. The Long Branch served milk, tea, lemonade, sarsaparilla, and all types of alcohol, including champagne and beer. Want to guess what the favorite beer was? Anheuser Busch was the original beer served at the Long Branch. Drinks were kept cold in the winter with ice from the river. In the summer, ice was shipped by train from the mountains of Colorado. Gambling ranged from 5 cents chuck check-a-luck to thousand-dollar poker, which gives you some idea of the money that was flowing through Dodge. The China Doll Brothel was famous for its three-dollar all-night looky-feely-dewey brass tokens, which can still be found on eBay today. For a time in 1884, at the height of the wild times, Dodge City even had a bullfighting ring where Mexican bullfighters were put on a show with specially chosen longhorn bulls. In 1878, when our story takes place, Dodge City was a wide-open cow town, complete with two newspapers, dance halls, dozens of saloons, theaters where comedy acts, acting troops, and singers could entertain. Hotels, restaurants, retail shops and services, and gambling halls and brothels were legal and prospered. Dodge City had a divided conscience, though. The citizens of the town, for the most part, wanted peace and prosperity but many of them were connected in one way or another with the businesses that profited largely from the cowboys and cattlemen who spent money freely while in town. They knew they needed law and order, but the city councilmen sometimes got real timid when the law got too rough, so they placed restrictions on what their peacemakers could and couldn't do. Does that sound familiar? And being a lawman in Dodge City was no easy task. A lawman had to be part politician and part lawman. Many cowboys came to have a high opinion of themselves and their value to the town, and many of them developed a sincere hatred for lawmen. The cowboys, fresh off the trail, recently paid and looking for excitement, like to shoot up the town, including sometimes the outside and inside of theaters, brothels, and saloons. They like to occasionally rob strangers, rope and drag innocent civilians down the street, and gun down civilians and lawmen in the streets and they were almost always drunk. When the lawmen apprehended and arrested the wrongdoers, they were taken to the jail and forced to wait for trial, which could take days or weeks, depending on where the county judge was at the time. Often they were bailed out by local businessmen. Sometimes they would escape, and when they did, a posse would go after them. When the criminal was high stakes, they sent the best. And when Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Bill Tillman, and Charlie Bassett rode out of town on October of 1878 in pursuit of James Kennedy for the murder of singer Dora Hand? James Kennedy didn't have a ghost of a chance. We'll return with Dodge City Legends, part one, The Murder of Dora Hand, right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. There were two types of lawmen in Dodge City. Sheriffs and their deputies were elected by voters and were paid employees of the city. Marshals and their deputies were appointed by a public official and paid by the federal government. These men were all men with the bark on, as the saying went. They were honest, hard-working, and experienced in confronting and arresting lawbreakers of all types. They knew the territory for hundreds of miles in any direction, and they knew the ways of lawbreakers and hardened criminals. Their lives were in danger as long as they were wearing a badge. And they had all been forced to kill in the line of duty, although that was always their last choice. Most of the time they found ways to defuse the situation, either by talking down the offender or giving them a swift rap on the back of the head with their pistol when it was called for. Almost without exception, the men they arrested were armed and intoxicated. And they had friends close by who wouldn't hesitate using their weapons. For this reason, many sheriffs, marshals, and deputies were killed in the line of duty. U.S. Marshals, like Charlie Bassett and Ed Masterson, Bat's brother, covered a much wider territory. For instance, a Dodge City Marshal would go after horse thieves, train robbers, and murderers in the area, taking in most of Nebraska, Kansas, and the Texas Panhandle. That was a huge area to cover, so they were often out of town on business. It was the sheriff's deputies who got stuck with serving summons, handling local disputes, and dealing with rowdy cowboys and drunks, for the most part. That wide-open town, with its cross-section of business owners, cowboys, buffalo hunters, soldiers, scouts, gamblers, Chinese railroad workers, soiled doves, con men, and drunks, had one thing in common. They almost always treated the theater troops with respect. They packed the theaters where dancers, entertainers, and singers would entertain, and even the toughest men would sit quiet and wide-eyed listening to entertainers like Dora Hand sing. All these men had come from somewhere else, and that somewhere else was often missed, and entertainers like Dora reached a hidden chord within these men that brought back memories of home, the girl next door, or of mom singing while she was hanging clothes out to dry, or rocking the baby to sleep. Dora Hand, born Isidore Addie May in 1844 in Lowell, Massachusetts, had shown strong vocal abilities at an early age, which prompted her well-to-do parents to enroll her at the Boston Conservatory of Music. From there she went to Germany for additional training and became a member of the Operatic Singers Touring Europe. When she returned to America, she started touring the States, and she became addicted to life on the road. When she joined a theater troupe that was touring the West, she fell in love with the openness of the plains and the open admiration she received wherever she performed. At one point, she married an Army captain named Theodore Hand and left the stage, but life on an Army post, with her husband often gone on missions, Just wasn't her cup of tea. To make things worse, he was unfaithful, and word was getting around. She divorced Hand in eighteen seventy eight and changed her name to Fanny Keaton, and got back on the stage in St. Louis. By eighteen seventy eight she was working in Texas and signed on with a theater troupe which was said to appear first in Abilene and then in Dodge City, Kansas. She came by stage to Dodge in June of eighteen seventy eight, accompanied by her housekeeper and her good friend Fanny Garrison. "'She was greeted by Mayor James Kelly, "'who had seen her act previously in another town. "'He was instantly inspired by her voice "'and taken in by her beauty. "'She described her arrival in Dodge "'in a letter to a friend, "'saying that the town showed a dizzying amount of activity. "'It was not a quiet, dusty front street that welcomed her, "'but filled with careening hack drivers, "'with people having to jump out of their way, "'soiled doves standing outside the doorways of their dens, "'stray dogs scrounging for food.' ranch hands working their bawling livestock into pens or railroad cars, disorderly drifters piling in and out of bars, and the occasional sound of pistol fire. Where some women would have climbed right back on the stage, Dora Han found herself smiling. She felt right at home, a part of the excitement. She must have communicated that through her singing because the whole town fell in love with her. The Dodge City Times and the Ford County Globe kept up with the comings and goings of notables in the city and surrounding counties and the Times once noted that when Dora Hand and actress Hattie Smith were booked at any theater, there was bound to be a full house. During the day, Dora served the community by helping to take care of the homeless and the sick. She would sometimes grub-stake cowboys who were down on their luck, meaning loan them a little money. She liked to perform in Dodge, and though she occasionally performed in other towns, she always returned. She had her share of suitors, who she always let down easily, and then there were a few who just wouldn't give up. There was one who particularly stayed after her, and his name was James Kennedy, spelled with one N, -N K-E-N-E-D-Y. Kennedy was the handsome, overly-indulged son of Texas cattle baron Mifflin Kennedy, and James was arrogant, having cut a wide swath back in Texas. He worked with a large group of cowboys who gave him shelter, and rarely picked a fight with him, since he was the boss's son. When not working, he dressed in expensive clothes and played the part of a wealthy man's son pretty well. "'When he strutted into the Alhambra Saloon "'in Dodge of September, 1878, "'it was with the intention of introducing himself to Dora, "'marrying her, and escorting her back to his ranch. "'She couldn't help but notice him "'as he shouldered his way to the front of the crowd "'and stood clapping and smiling at the end of her song. "'She had seen his type before, "'and there just wasn't any attraction. "'She surrendered the stage to Fanny Garrison, "'grabbed her favorite drink from the bartender, "'and quietly seated herself at the back of the room.' James strolled over to her and pulled up a chair without asking for an invitation. He placed a bottle of whiskey and two glasses in front of her. She watched him with polite indifference, and in spite of his attempts to capture her attention, she kept her eyes focused on the stage beyond him and Fanny's performance. "'My name's James Kennedy,' he said, as he poured himself a drink. "'My friends call me Spike.' And Dora answered, "'I know who you are, Mr. Kennedy.' Dora answered coolly. That brought a smile to his face as he studied her hair, her face, her clothes, and her hands. She continued to politely ignore him. At that moment Mayor Kelly walked up behind her and placed a friendly hand on her shoulder. Kelly was a force to be reckoned with. He was burly and well-built, in his mid-forties, and sported a droopy mustache. His hair was thinning out with his age, but he was still nobody to mess with. He'd been an army scout for Custer while the 7th was stationed at Fort Dodge. When Custer left, he gave Kelly his greyhound hunting dogs, and those dogs seldom if ever left Kelly's side. They earned him the nickname Dog. James and the mayor eyed one another carefully. Kennedy was on the mayor's blacklist, his family having sold the mayor a stolen horse just a few months before. James was certain that it was Kelly who had communicated that fact to Dora, and that that was the reason he was getting the cold shoulder and that resentment rose to the top thanks to the large amounts of liquor that Kennedy had already consumed. His voice rose as he started to cuss out Kelly, and he blurted out that he, Kennedy, would have Dora as his own. Kelly waited through this about one long minute, allowing Kennedy to make a fool of himself, and hoping that his cowboy pals would grab him and escort him out. But if they were around, they were hanging back and watching. Kelly finally reached down, jerked Kennedy out of his seat, and physically tossed him out of the theater. After he sobered up, Kennedy swore to anyone who would listen that he would get even with Kelly. The next morning, Mayor Kelly headed for his home, which was a modest house located just behind the Great Western Hotel, and attempted to take a nap. A little later, Kennedy decided to pay Kelly a visit. Kelly woke up quickly to the sound of footsteps across the gravel path leading to his front door, grabbed his revolver, which was always handy, and seeing it was Kennedy, flung the front door open and pointed his gun straight at Kennedy's chest. Kennedy was taken aback. He was expecting an easy attack on the sleeping man. Now he was staring down the barrel of a forty-four. James's plan came to nothing, and he had nothing left but insults, which he started shouting. Kelly ordered him off his property. Kennedy had no choice but to back up. As he did so, the wind lifted the curtains of Kelly's bedroom, revealing the bed where he slept within a few feet of the front window. A savage look came across Kennedy's face as he pictured Kelly lying there in a pool of blood. Not many days later, on October 3rd, 1878, Dora Hand entertained another standing-room-only crowd at the Alhambra Saloon and Gambling House. She graciously accepted the huge applause, thanked her piano player, said goodnight to her audience, and left the saloon to retire for the evening. Normally she stayed at the hotel, but Mayor Kelly had given her a key to his home and told her that she and Fanny were welcome to stay at his more comfortable place behind the hotel whenever he was out of town. She went in, changed into her nightclothes, and soon was fast asleep in the mayor's bed. Her friend Fanny finished her show around midnight, and soon was sleeping on the other side of the bed from Dora. At 4.15 a.m., Fanny Gerritsen was awakened by four pistol shots, which she believed had hit the walls of the house. She glanced down at the quilt covering her, and saw a burn hole in the fabric. Then she pulled the quilt away, and saw Dora's blood flowing out from her side. Dora wasn't moving or making any noise. She appeared to be dead. Fanny raced out of the house, screaming, her eyes wide with terror. Shaking and hysterical, she sat down in the alleyway between Mayor Kelly's home and the row of saloons that bordered the building in the back. Wyatt Earp and Jim Masterson, Bat Masterson's younger brother, were on duty that night, and hearing four gunshots, came running. They found Fanny Gerritson outside in her nightgown sobbing, her arms wrapped around her knees, rocking back and forth. All she could do was point at the house and repeat, Poor Dora! Poor Dora! Wyatt and Jim went around to the front, noticing that the front door frame had been splintered by a bullet, and went inside, drawing their guns, not knowing what or who they would find. Bat Masterson, who had been awakened by the shots, arrived at that time as well, and tried to calm down Fanny outside. When she calmed down enough to talk to him, she said Dora never spoke and died unconscious. She had been asleep when she was struck and unconscious when she died. Fanny had no idea who had done the shooting. She stated that they had been sleeping in the mayor's bed and that he had told them that whenever he was away, they were welcome to stay there. It was much more accommodating than the hotel beds. The judge had been sick for two or three weeks and he was obliged to go to the hospital at Dodge. Then her body convulsed again with sobs. "'When she recovered her from that, she said, in gasps, "'What a horrible death, to go to bed well and hearty "'and not dream of anything, and to be cut down in such a matter "'without chance to breathe a word.'" Wyatt and Jim entered the room where Dora lay dead in a pool of blood. She had been shot once in the side, near the heart. The judge and coroner Rufus G. Cook had been summoned and soon arrived. He gently lifted Dora's arm, saw the bullet hole, and muttered the word, "'Coward,' under his breath." Bat was standing next to him as he pronounced her dead, shook his head, and stalked out of the room. His brother and Wyatt joined him outside. Fanny had been escorted to a hotel by friends who had been alerted. Jim asked Bat, "'Does Kelly know any cowards?' Bat replied, "'Hell, he probably serves a dozen or so a night that are all gurgle and no guts.' "'Maybe,' Bat said. "'It's just somebody that can't get served at all at the Alhambra.' Bad glanced over at Wyatt, knowing exactly what he was saying, and voiced the word, Kennedy. Wyatt nodded in silent agreement. Kennedy was the son of a stern Quaker, the previously mentioned Mifflin Kennedy, and a beautiful Mexican mother, Petra, from whom he had inherited his dark features. She was the daughter of the former governor of Mexico and a devout Catholic, Mifflin, who had been a ship's captain in his early life in Philadelphia before leaving the East to seek his fortune, had become a very wealthy cattleman, and had once been a partner in the famous King Ranch, but had purchased his own 172,000-acre ranch named Loralis, about 23 miles outside of Corpus Christi, Texas. Mifflin Kennedy had as much to do with Dodge City's growth as anyone, and received special treatment from all the cow towns through which he ran his cattle. The two had six children, of which James was the most spoiled. As he grew through his teens, he was always getting into scrapes and hanging with a bad crowd. He particularly liked fast horses, gambling, whiskey, and whores, and his father was always bailing him out of trouble. To try to keep him honest, his father gave him a panhandle spread and 2,000 head of cattle, as well as a bunch of cowhands, but it failed to keep him out of trouble. Hard work and empire building held no interest for James. He spent most of his time far from his ranch, and when he first saw Dora Hand, who was using the stage name Fanny Keaton, performing at Lady Gay Saloon in Dodge City. He knew he had to have her. There was a problem, though. He couldn't buy her. And many say that puts a stake through the idea that Dora was a working girl. To be honest, she didn't need it. She was a soloist making $75 a week, that being equal to about 1750 a week today. While Dora sang, Jim Kennedy stayed busy garnering the attention of law in Dodge City. On July 29, 1878, Dodge City Deputy Marshal Wyatt Earp arrested Kennedy for brandishing a pistol. Brandishing likely meant that he had it out and he was waving it around, and likely firing it. The fact that Earp arrested him while doing it shows how these peacekeepers worked, walking right up to them and taking their weapon from them, either from the front or the back, and usually giving them a rap on the head to calm them down. I remember the episode we did on Wyatt Earp when, in his later years, he explained that move and how it was done to a young USC student working at Summer Help at MGM Film Studios in Los Angeles. The young student's name? Michael Morrison, known to us today as John Wayne. On August 17th, Marshal Charlie Bassett arrested Kennedy for disorderly conduct. A judge led him off with a fine and a warning to stay out of trouble. Kennedy was on a one-way track to self-destruction. Some people say it was four shots. Others, like the Dodge City Globe, say it was two shots that went through Mayor Kelly's home. The first shot passed through the front door frame, struck the floor, passed through the carpet and facing of the partition, and lodged in the next room. The second shot also passed through the door, according to the Globe, but it was apparently more elevated, striking the bed, passing closely over Fanny Gerritsen, and striking Dora Hand in the right side, killing her instantly. Bat Masterson went inside and took a long look at the bullet holes and the position of Dora's body. Judge Cook was covering her face with a sheet. He fired the shots from horseback, Bat said. No one would have known that Dora was in Kelly's bed. Jim Masterson, also in the room, added sadly, "'Just make sure it was Kennedy, and if it was, take him down.'" Wyatt and Jim Masterson prowled Front Street and walked into the Long Branch, which was busy even for 5 a.m. in the morning. They were looking for Kennedy, but there had been no witnesses to the shooting, so they couldn't arrest him. Wyatt spotted Kennedy sitting at a modding table in the back of the room with one of his friends and the dealer. Kennedy looked up, saw Erp and Masterson, and slammed down a quick shot of whiskey. While agitated at the appearance of the lawman, he was trying to look like he had nothing to worry about. Wyatt walked over to the bartender and quietly asked him if he'd heard any shots within the past hour. The bartender poured two drinks for the pair and answered, "'I can talk in the back, not out here.' "'Then he grabbed a few empty bottles from the shelf "'and walked into the back room. "'Wyatt and Jim followed. "'When they were out of sight of the front room, "'the bartender opened up. "'In a low voice, he said, "'Spike left shortly before the shooting started. "'Then he came back here and ordered a big drink of whiskey. "'I don't know what he was doing, "'but I do know he figures himself to be immune "'from ever being arrested again.' "'Wyatt now had cause. "'He stepped out of the back room and looked for Kennedy.' But he was gone. The bat-wing doors of the saloon were still swinging. The two lawmen ran out. A faint layer of dust was rising in the light of a kerosene lamp in a boarding house window at the end of the block. The distant hoofbeats of a fast horse could be heard disappearing into the night. Ever wonder where the expression "time to get out of dodge" originated? That was likely the moment. Marshal Charlie Bassett approached the two men on the boardwalk. They told him what had happened and suggested that it was likely James Kennedy. Bassett said, He's always nursed a hatred for Dog, and for the law here. But he's a backshooter. He doesn't have the nerve to take us on. Jim, I want you to come with me, and let's make sure it was Kennedy that rode out of here. Wyatt, I want you to ride to Fort Dodge, and bring back Mayor Kelly. Before you leave for Fort Dodge, get in touch with Bill Tillman, Bill Duffy, and Bat. And tell them we need him for a posse. We'll meet here at 2 p.m. Bassett could see that Wyatt was looking down Front Street, knowing that Kennedy was putting distance between them as fast as he could, if it was Kennedy. And they were giving him half a day's head start. Bassett read his mind and answered, Don't worry, Wyatt. Men like that leave a trail that's easy to find. Charlie Bassett had seen it all. He had come west in 1865, working as a miner, a bartender, and a buffalo hunter. He'd been the first to open what became the Long Branch Saloon in 1872, and it was late that same year when Ford County citizens chose Bassett as their first sheriff. He was reelected twice, serving until 1878 in one of the toughest cities in the West, when the job went to Bat Masterson. The two had worked together for years, and Bat appointed Charlie as under-sheriff, keeping him close, which was a wise move, as Charlie had a wealth of experience by that time. Bassett also became the marshal of Dodge that year in 1878 after the murder of the third Masterson brother, Ed Masterson, by two Texans named Jack Wagner and Alfred Walker on April 9th of that year. After Ed Masterson's funeral, the city council appointed Charlie as city marshal at a salary of 100 a month. He and Bat had chased outlaw Sam Bass across two states. When outlaw Dave Rudabaugh held up a train at Kingsley, Kansas in January, Masterson and John Webb rode out and captured Rudabaugh and one accomplice. A few weeks later, Charlie Bassett captured the other two right in Dodge City. He had a reputation as a tough but fair lawman, and he backed down for no one. Jim Tillman and Bat Masterson were both known as excellent shots. When Bat's older brother was killed, Bat got led into the killer while getting shot in the leg himself. He walked with a cane for the rest of his career, but it didn't interfere with his lawman duties. He could ride and shoot as well as anyone and better than most. Bill Tillman was a career lawman and gunfighter in Kansas, and later went into law enforcement in Oklahoma. He never achieved the household word status of his close friends Wyatt and Bat, but he's still known pretty well today by most of the people who follow the Old West. His memoirs were made into a 1915 film that he directed and starred in as himself. You might remember a TNT Network special titled You Know My Name, in which Sam Elliott played Bill Tillman, and although that film story was partly fictional, I recall that it correctly portrayed Tillman as a crossover in time, a lawman who now drove an automobile along the dirt roads of Oklahoma in pursuit of criminals, when not too many years ago he had been riding horses, doing the same thing. He was a good lawman, and he died on duty at age 70, trying to bring down a corrupt prohibition agent. As the morning dawned and moved toward noon in Dodge City, "'The lawmen carefully questioned all the witnesses they could find "'who could give them some clue as to the killer and his movements. "'A laborer at the stockyards just outside of town "'reported a strange encounter he had had the day before. "'A large, powerful horse had been delivered at the yard "'via freight train early that afternoon. "'The hostler boarded and fed the horse "'while waiting for the owner to come and claim it. "'At about 3.40 in the morning, "'he heard some noises in the yard and went out to investigate. "'He noticed that the horse was gone.' Also gone was a saddle that James Kennedy had brought in with his horse when he boarded it there. The laborer glanced out of the yard toward town and saw the shadow of a man walking that horse toward town. At that moment, while the man was still within earshot, another man rode up and asked the man with the horse if he knew where the doctor was in town. The man walking the horse responded in bad Spanish that he didn't speak English. Bad Spanish or not, when the laborer heard his voice, he recognized it as being that of James Kennedy. While the law and Dodge scoured the town for witnesses, Wyatt was writing to Fort Dodge to notify Kelly of the killing of Dora Hand. When Wyatt met him, Kelly told him, "'Bring him in alive, Wyatt. Dodge will want to deal with him as a community.' He was obviously hoping for a public hanging. By the time Wyatt returned with Mayor Kelly, they had rounded up the man who had been seen with Kennedy at the Long Branch. Bill Tillman was questioning him. He finally admitted, "'Kennedy swore he was going to kill Kelly last night. He said that the mayor was going to have to pay.' Within the hour, the bartender from the Great Western Hotel walked in and said that the rider he saw leaving the vicinity of the murder was James Kennedy. That was all they needed. It was now 2 p.m. on the sunny afternoon of October 4, 1878. Five lawmen were saddling up to hunt down a killer. Wyatt Earp, Charlie Bassett, Bill Tillman, Bad Masterson, and Deputy William Duffy. Just before they left, another man informed them that Kennedy had purchased a very expensive, very fast horse in Kansas City and it had been shipped to Dodge City by train. Now they knew that Kennedy had been planning this murder and his escape for some time. He also had the horse's shoes removed, making tracking the horse almost impossible. As the posse rode out, a group of quick-tempered cowboys who rode for Kennedy's King Ranch watched them go, swearing that they wouldn't stand by and let one of their fellow cowboys be chased down and killed. In those days, you rode for the brand, right or wrong. One hour later, they rode out in pursuit of the posse. Join us next Sunday night for Part 2 of Dodge City, 1878, The Murder of Dora Hand, Manhunt, as Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Bill Tillman, and Charlie Bassett hunt down the killer of Dora Hand. We appreciate reviews, so if your host offers reviews, please take a minute and send them our way. Reviews help new listeners find us, and that helps us grow. Also, we've seen a big increase in Patreon supporters recently, and we want to thank all of you for your generous monthly pledges. We hope you're enjoying the large selection of ad-free episodes we've been sending, as well as the early bird releases, which go to the $2.99 a month and up crowd. It really takes a special person to support independents like 1001, and I appreciate it more than you'll ever know. There are over 2 million podcasts out there. Somewhere between 1% and 2% of them make any money, according to statistics I've seen. In this podcast business, the top 100 is becoming dominated by well-financed corporations, which have huge ad budgets and operation budgets, and hire writers, hosts, and editors. Here at 1001, I do everything alone. The research, the writing, the hosting, the marketing, and the editing of seven weekly shows. I'm never quite alone here. The success I've had is only because of all of you listeners, which is why you will hear me saying we all the time when referring to our podcast network. I love what I do, and I'm proud of my shows. They tell history the way it really happened. We interview great authors and deal with a wide variety of topics, and we keep it all family friendly. And we introduce classic literature on four of our podcasts meaning, I choose the story, and I do the read, chapter by chapter, unless it's a short story, as well as the editing, which takes about three times as much time as the read. And our production quality is often praised in reviews. I'm not a voice pro but I love sharing good literature and I think that comes through. My two favorite authors, no surprise, Jack London and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Lucy Maud Montgomery is my favorite female classic author. My closest friends tell me that this is an enormous task to perform weekly and I answer that the reward is being able to share it all with people who appreciate and enjoy listening. Our audience is worldwide and we're approaching six million listens a year. Your reviews and our Patreon supporters keep me pumped up. Those of you who support our sponsors, especially my live reads where I mention the sponsor website, followed by slash 1001, are also invaluable to me. Sponsors look for results. When you purchase using our 1001 code, they stay longer. I used to be a little gun-shy about asking for Patreon support, but I got over that. When you ask, good things come your way. To support us at Patreon, Go to patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. That's patreon, P A T R E O N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you. We'll return next Sunday night with part two. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.